I'll read from John 19 and Luke 24. John 19, starting at verse 17. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And now we'll go to Luke 24, starting at verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. We'll skip ahead to verse 44. Then Jesus said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witness of these things. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would open our minds to understand, just as you did for the apostles here. We pray, Father, be with us, have your Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us into your presence. In Jesus' name, and for the sake of his kingdom's growth, we pray. Amen. This is part two of a two-part Passion Week sermon series. Last week, we covered the first half of that week from Sunday through Thursday morning. The title of the message was, From Hero to Villain. Today's title is, From Victor, Victim to Savior, and it covers from the crucifixion to the resurrection. So in these two sermon titles, there are four words that describe roles of Jesus. Hero, Villain, Victim, Savior. At the triumphal entry, Jesus was hailed as a hero. And yet, within very few days, 
he was treated as a villain by the religious leaders and the Roman authorities. He was viewed as a victim by all those who saw him mistreated and executed. And yet, he rose from the grave to reveal himself to be the savior of mankind. Hero, villain, victim, savior. Only one of these titles is true of Jesus. The other three refer instead to perceptions of Jesus, not the reality. Each of the first three titles is wrong in some fundamental way, and we'll examine why that's so in a bit. Only the role of Savior was true, and yet it was the role that the people least understood. So let's first recap what happened during the latter half of this week. And we'll begin where we left off last week. Jesus was before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate finds no wrong in Jesus, and yet he submits to the cry of the mob to have him crucified and have Barabbas released. And so he makes a great show of washing his hands in their presence, saying, I am free of guilt in the death of this man. Jesus is scourged, mocked, and then forced to carry his cross to the place of execution outside the city called Golgotha. John says that Jesus carried his cross, but all of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all mention that a Cyrenian by the name of Simon was pressed into service and followed behind Jesus carrying his cross. And so the thought is that Jesus' strength failed him. And the reality is that even though Jesus was only 33 years old, it would seem that he had, in these three years of ministry, very nearly worked himself to death. Some of you remember Deb Haynes. And Deb, I know, said this more than once that I heard her. And she said, Rod, it's not the years, but the miles. And what she meant is that some people live hard lives. And I believe that was true of Jesus. The variation in the Gospels related to the carrying of the cross, where John says Jesus carried it, and the other three say that Simon was pressed into service to carry it, and John says nothing of Simon, these variations in gospel stories bring up an interesting point that I want to mention. You may be surprised to learn that skeptics of Christianity love the gospels. They may love the gospels as much as Christians do. Why do they love the gospels so much? Because they believe the gospels are proof that there are many, many errors in the Bible. They point to these variations in the accounts and say, these are errors. For a long, long time, forever, I've wanted to develop my own harmonization of the Gospels, to knit them all together, to work through all of what are puzzling statements that are made. 
Thus far, I've only addressed some of them as I've stumbled across them and need to teach about them or want to teach about them. I would imagine that Phil may have worked through these. Phil, have you worked through harmonization of the Gospels to your satisfaction? Oh, Phil isn't here today. I wonder where he is. Well, no matter. We'll learn from him later whether he's worked through a harmonization of the Gospels. But anybody who is familiar with having to work through the difficulties of knitting together first-person accounts of the same thing knows that just because people are saying it differently doesn't mean that they're saying something different. They're not necessarily untrue. In the Gospels, in the four Gospels, and in all of the other portions of Scripture that cover narratives like Kings and Chronicles, we are given a primer by God on logic, on basic logic. What is true? What is false? How do you know when something is true or false? These uh, texts give us this primer, if only we would avail ourselves of it. But again, it's for the difference in this account of John that I chose the Gospel of John. They are not all identical. They emphasize and de-emphasize different parts. So, the reason I chose John is that it's so brief. This time of Jesus on the cross before his death is fairly brief in John. It's only eight verses. I'm only reading six of the verses because I wasn't interested in drawing out the clothing issue, drawing lots for the clothes. But in Matthew, this portion covers 13 verses, in Mark 12, and in Luke 18. So I just chose a shorter one. Yet, even though the John account is shorter, it devotes half of its space to covering what Pilate wrote and placed over Jesus. The other Gospels all mention it, but they all mention it in only one verse. So now, what did Pilate write, and how is it referred to in the Gospels? So, according to the four accounts, this is what Jesus, this is what Pilate wrote and had placed as a banner on Jesus on the cross. They're all different. Matthew, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Mark, the King of the Jews. Luke, this is the King of the Jews. John, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. So John's account is the fullest. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Matthew also mentions Jesus. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. But neither Mark nor Luke mention the name of Jesus or Nazareth. Mark and Luke both say the king of the Jews, and this is the king of the Jews. So we have variation in these statements. Is any one of these statements in error? Does it prove that there are errors in the Bible? If you repeat them and look at them, you can see that there is this core message that is conveyed. The King of the Jews. That is the only statement that's given in Mark. And we know Mark is the most concise of the Gospel accounts at only 16 chapters. Pilate was said to have written this statement in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin three different languages. We don't know whether Pilate wrote the exact same thing in each of those languages. We know that it's possible for interpretations to vary from language to language, but perhaps he did write the same thing. 
and pulling them all together, we could say that perhaps what he wrote was, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And then every gospel account gives only a portion of that full title. But in that they did not include the full title does not mean that they are not true. Now, what is it that each of the books says about these words, this phrase? Mark said that this was an inscription of his crime. In other words, this is what was common in that day. A thief would have thief hung above him on the cross. A murderer would have murderer hung above him on the cross. And so what was Jesus' crime? And all four agree his crime was that he was the king of the Jews. Pilate refused to change this when he was confronted by the chief priests. No, 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 don't say this. Say that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. Now, I don't believe Pilate believed what he'd written. He just wanted to tweak the noses of the religious leaders. But what he had written was true. And John tells us that it was true. Just as the high priest Caiaphas earlier in John, John records what he said as being true. Let me start at John 11, verse 47. This is where they initially plot to kill Jesus. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So both Pilate and Caiaphas spoke things that were true beyond their comprehension, and God wanted it to be so. Earlier, I'd mentioned to you that three of the four titles I've used in these two sermon titles is wrong. Hero is wrong. From hero to villain is what the title was last week, and yet both of those titles is wrong. Jesus was not the hero the apostles and the people thought that he was. He was far more. He was far more than what they thought he was, but he was still a disappointment to them. When they heard a kingdom was coming, they pictured power and glory. Jesus used the term kingdom of heaven a lot. In Matthew, it's almost used exclusively, kingdom of heaven, whereas throughout the other gospels, it's referred to as kingdom of God. And yet what we're talking about is what we read about in Isaiah. I'll read from Isaiah chapter 9, starting at verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, 
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice, from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Let's go to where Jesus reveals himself. He's just beginning his ministry. This is in Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 16. He is in his hometown of Nazareth. So Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, what we now know as Isaiah 61, and he said this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. Where Jesus quoted from is in Isaiah 61, and let me turn there. It's Isaiah 61, starting at verse 1, and we read much the same thing. And Jesus reads into verse 2, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he sits down. But in Isaiah 61, there is a comma there. It doesn't even end a sentence. And the way verse 2 goes on is this. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus chose not to say that that day. And he said, this is what has been fulfilled right now. And so he was telling them that the day of vengeance of our God has not yet been fulfilled. And as we now know, it would not be fulfilled for almost another 40 years. But see, this is what the Jews were looking forward to, and they were reading past everything else. They were looking forward to the part that Jesus didn't say, the vengeance of our God. So in Matthew 16, Peter affirms the apostles regarding Jesus as the promised king. Jesus says, who do they say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And he said, you are God, you are the king. Jesus then begins to prophesy concerning his death. This is where he first brings up the fact that he's going to die. And immediately, Peter takes him aside to rebuke him. And that's when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. The last verse of Matthew chapter 16 reads this. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is what was fulfilled about 35 years later. Some of these people lived to see that day. But yet, Acts chapter 1 verse 6, where Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, it's obvious 
that the apostles still don't understand what's happening, even though they've lived through everything now, and Jesus is about to go into heaven. Because they say this to him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? This is where their heart is. This is what they're looking forward to. They still don't understand what Jesus has really done. Jesus was not the hero that anyone wanted. The title of hero is wrong. The title of villain was also wrong. Jesus died as a villain, with villains, just as was prophesied of him. In Isaiah 53, verse 12, we read this. He poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. No one in Jerusalem truly believed Jesus to be a villain. The people regarded him as a very holy prophet, and a select few regarded him as the son of David, as the king, as God. Pontius Pilate called him a just person. Pontius Pilate's wife called him a just man. The centurion at the cross that had probably taken part in his crucifixion called him the son of God, and surely we have killed a righteous man. Religious leaders wanted him dead, not because he was a criminal, but because he was so popular and because he had opened contempt for them. He did not have high regard for their religious leadership of Jerusalem. Jesus was not a villain though he did suffer as a villain to intercede for villains. What that quote from Isaiah 53, as opposed to transgressors, you can read that as villain. He poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So, he was not a villain or a hero. The title of victim in today's sermon is wrong, from victim to savior. Modern America has given the word victim a bad rap. Just a couple of years ago, two sociologists wrote a book. Their names are Bradley Campbell and Jason Manning, and they wrote a book entitled The Rise of Victimhood Culture, Microaggressions, Safe Spaces, and the New Culture Wars. Victim has been transformed in present society. Victim is not what it used to be. What it used to be was more like this, and this is a definition for victim. A person harmed, injured, or killed as a result of a crime, accident, or other action. Now it is true that Jesus was killed, and it was a crime, but there the similarity ends with him being regarded as a victim. Because we all know that victim brings a certain sense of weakness to it. There is a word that often appears before the word victim as a modifier, defenseless. A defenseless victim. A poor, defenseless victim. To be victimized is to be taken advantage of, to be cheated, to be fooled, to be bested. In the movie Batman Begins, starring Liam Neeson, he is 
He plays two roles, one in which he's trusted and one in which he reveals himself to be evil. He accuses the man who becomes Batman, saying this, because Batman, Bruce Wayne, had witnessed his parents' death, their murder on the street. He said, your parents' death was not your fault. It was your father's fault. Liam Neeson, to him, everything is about power and about the ability to exert power on other people and not have them exerted on you. Once long ago, I mentioned that I'd read a book in my teenage years entitled Cops. It was a big, very boring book, but I did read the whole thing. And it was fascinating in one regard in that it really did give you uh, the mindset, the worldview of beat cops, just policemen in a big city. And one of the things that has always stuck with me is that police can rationalize crime. They can understand crime and, and cope with it only by presuming at least some guilt on the part of the victim. In other words, the victim was kind of asking for what happened to them. And they try to fit that. Now, I'm not saying all policemen. Some policemen obviously wouldn't think that way. But yet, it is a coping mechanism common with policemen, that they blame the victim. The only time that that's really challenged for most policemen is when they're dealing with a young child, a two-year-old, that's been uh, abused or beaten or sexually a predator by either parents or some stranger. That's the only time where their coping mechanism is really defeated, because this is just pure evil. This person did not deserve this. But see, Jesus was not a victim in this sense. Quite, quite to the contrary. Three times Jesus told the apostles he was going to be killed in Jerusalem. In Matthew 20, verse 28, he said that he came to give his life a ransom for many. Give his life a ransom for many. His life was not taken from him. He gave it up for a very specific purpose. And there is another uh, common theme text across all the Gospels where Jesus dies. And I want to again share with you all of the different perspectives on his death from the four Gospels. In Mark and Luke, this is how it reads. Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. In Matthew 27:50 it says this, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So Mark and Luke say breathed his last, Matthew says yielded up his spirit. And then John 19:30 says, he said it is finished, and bowing his head he gave up his spirit. Mark and Luke as gospel accounts are referred to as the gospel of the servant and the gospel of the man. We know that it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, king, servant, man, God. So in Mark and Luke, where, where Jesus is viewed as a servant or as a man, his death is passive. He breathed his last. Yet in Matthew, where he is king, it says that he yielded up his spirit. And A.W. Pink says that that really doesn't capture the essence of what's happened. The essence is this. He delivered up his spirit. It was an act of the will. It was an act of Christ's volition to die, to give up.
to give up his life at that moment. And the same is true in John 19, verse 30. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. This was a volitional act on the part of Christ. His death, his life did not just ebb away. He died. At that specific point in time, because he was done. Jesus was not a hero. He was not a villain. He was not a victim. But he was a savior. This is the only title I've used that's true. And yet it's the one that nobody understood concerning him. Now, it's not surprising that Pontius Pilate would not understand, nor Herod. They were powerful leaders in that world, and everything they saw through the prism of force and power. Years ago, when Howard Phillips, just after he'd run for president, I was reading a cassette tape that he'd recorded, and he was speaking of a man named William Bennett that was a player in the Reagan administration. And he was very unhappy with William Bennett as a politician because he had changed his tune. He had gone into government to make it smaller, and yet he was refusing to follow that path. And what William Bennett said in response to a rebuke by Howard Phillips is telling. William Bennett said this, well, Howard, where you stand on an issue depends upon where you sit. What he meant by that was that he was now in a position in government where his views had changed because he was now in power and his view on making government smaller had changed. That's how powerful people view power. They never want to give it up. The religious leaders didn't see Christ as Savior because, frankly, they were spiritually dead. They had done as Esau had done long, long earlier. They had sold their birthright for a pot of stew. And the mass of people present saw only Roman tyranny, and they wanted rid of it. They wanted to have Israel return to its former glory. The disciples of Christ, the apostles, were growing in knowledge but they were unaware and in part kept unaware until the very end, even up until Acts 1 verse 6, as I mentioned earlier. Jesus carried out this great plan to perfection, and it fooled everyone. He kept his disciples safe to the very end, in part through this deception. It's not really deception, but it was a not revealing all of the truth because it was too early and he referred to that several times in the Gospels that it was not his time yet at the tomb Mary did not recognize Jesus she thought he was the gardener on the road to Emmaus the disciples didn't recognize Jesus even though they walked with him for miles the text says that their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him 
But when they ate with him, their eyes were opened, and they knew him. Listen to what the angel at the tomb said in Luke 24. Luke 24, verses 4 through 8. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. When the angels said, Remember how he spoke to you, they were commanding them to remember how they were spoken to. And then, only then, did they remember his words. Look at what Jesus later said in Luke, towards the end of this chapter, in verse 44. Then Jesus said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Apart from God opening their understanding, they would not have understood. This is a most unusual Passion Week that we are ending. Easter, today is the High Holy Day in Christianity. There are many Christians, who people who call themselves Christians, who only go to church on Easter and perhaps Christmas. But God has changed that this year. He's changed it not only in America, but all over the world. Whether you personally think it wise to sequester or foolish to sequester, it's obvious to us that God has done a work, that he has done a work of enormous significance in our world. And yet this work of intervention pales in comparison to what he did in Jerusalem. Jesus was not the hero the Jews wanted. Jesus was not the villain the authorities condemned. Jesus was not the defenseless victim many perceived as they watched that man die on the cross. Jesus is the Savior, the only Savior available to rescue mankind from hell. Every human born on this earth deserves hell and is headed to hell. Only Jesus can and does offer to take our place in that awful place. Jesus has been to hell. He endured hell for those who place their faith and trust in him. We who trust in Jesus do not have hell to look forward to because Jesus has endured it on our behalf already. We must cast aside all distractions that restrain us from embracing this reality. The sequestration of millions of people over Passion Week can work much good. But people's salvation is not protection from COVID-19 during this time. People's salvation is and always has been rescue from sin 
and the condemnation due to us because of our sin. Let's pray that people would turn to the only Savior available to them in this time, in this most unusual time. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for all of life, and we thank you for your son's death. We thank you, Lord, that he did fulfill his commitment to you, his promise to you, that you held him to that, and he held himself to that. He was a man of honor. He fulfilled this obligation to you, and in doing so, he overcame death, he overcame hell, and yet he had to eat sin. He had to endure the sin that was heaped upon him. For this, we give you thanks. And it is uh, not enough, but yet, Father, uh, nothing would be enough for us to pay that price. And so we thank you that Jesus did. We ask you now to be with us, to have this reality be ours, that we would not forget, that we would not think lightly of what had happened that day long ago. We ask you now, Lord, to be with us, to draw us close to your heart. We give you thanks for life and for uh, the future that we have uh, to look forward to in heaven with you and Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit working in our heart and transforming us into your likeness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.